This is our Suburb Trends Report for December 2020, and we'll be looking at where prices are moving across the country, either up or down, and why they're moving. In this episode, we'll also be discussing some of the areas in New South Wales that have a higher potential for price rises if stamp duty is abolished and we see a rise of flippers in the market. We'll also wrap up the year that was in terms of capital city changes. Look, I might do it alphabetically, but uh, look, the ACT was just a standout in so many ways. So it's obviously you know, had an increase in, in price. Um, so it's, it's just it's a huge market in terms of all the fundamentals. Inventory levels are very, very low at the moment. So lowest across all the capital cities at about 1.73. So I'm, I'm going to make a bit of a bold prediction for 2021. I we might be talking about the ACT as the most expensive capital city in Australia soon. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. And I'm the data geek, Kent Lardner. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report which experts can you trust to get it right the elephant in the this month's focus is on one potential impact on the property market if the new south wales government is successful in its push to phase out stamp duty It doesn't take a genius to work out that demand is likely to rise, so buyers' budgets will also rise, which of course will lead to prices rising unless supply increases accordingly. Many are also predicting the rise of the property flipper. They buy a rundown house, do anything from a quick makeover to a full renovation, and put it back on the market as fast as they can. Their profit margin will receive an instantaneous boost if they can tick the land tax box rather than the stamp duty box when they buy. And we asked Kent whether there was a way to identify areas that would be most attractive to the flippers. Over to you, Kent. How did you go about the task? I went about this task at a market or suburb by suburb basis. And the first thing I did is I pulled out areas that were either flat or increasing in values. Um, So typically we use inventory levels there. And we filtered the data tables. We, We looked at those that had a bit of a higher yield. We looked at those with low inventory levels. And then what we did is we looked at the variance between a two-bedroom and a three-bedroom median price and between a three-bedroom and a four-bedroom median price, just as our first-level filter. Mm. So that was our, that was our high-level approach. And so that the variance the idea there is that if you can add um, a bedroom within that budget range, within that variance that the logic goes that it would be worthwhile flipping? Is that the sort of... That's the theory. Yes, the theory. And and in a lot of cases, we find that it's actually the bathroom, adding a bathroom, going from a one-bedroom to a bath, mm. two two bedroom, uh, sorry, one bathroom to a two bathroom, brings about a, a significant change in a lot of the automated valuation models that, mm. that we use. So, uh, typically, there the theory there is that a lot of the two bathroom properties are renovated, and a lot of the one bathroom properties, especially in some of these older areas, are unrenovated. So that's where that big price jump comes. <laughs> Tricky. 
I mean, there was, um, I think the lot in your patch, Veronica, the two bed sort of terraces, you know, were a good target for families because they could add a third bedroom and potentially a second bathroom. But I wonder if that's really the, the product that people want, you know, that three bed sort of two bath or people really want four beds. So maybe the flippers will go for those bigger sort of estate homes rather than, you know, the small terraces. What do you, what do you think about that, Kate? I, look, I go back, I'm showing my age here, but about 20 years ago we did a, a, a radio show, I think it was with Kevin, it might have been 15, 15 years ago, and we, we've actually found a number of one-bedroom terraces in and around the inner west in your mm-hmm. neck, neck of the woods, Veronica. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they, they're long gone now, but at that time there were a number of one-bedroom properties we could find and we, we then did the what-if analysis. What if we converted this to a two-bedroom, two-bathroom or a three-bedroom, two-bathroom by using the loft, as was the case for a lot of the renovators at the time. And that, un- that opened up some amazing changes to the, to the what-if price estimate. Uh, some of those jumped by 300K or more. So it left plenty of margin for the renovation. Um, so I, I think it's a case-by-case basis. Certainly this research is not a, a suburb-level thing. It's very much a property-level thing, but you want to look for the, for the fundamentals at a property level, and one of those is you're looking at the price mm. segments. I think you don't want to be inventing a new price segment. You want to be you know, at the lower end or in the middle and know that you've got pretty, plenty of room to move in terms of price upwards. Yeah, it's, that's actually something that we look at when we're um, assessing a property and it's uh, price finder, have a price segmentation graph. And, you know, Kent, we used to use your suburb trends one, but you kept changing the link and we sort of gave up. Like, <laughs> then it's a new link because yours I, is even better. I got it there. It's there. And you can, the beauty of the my one is you can actually, well, they're both mine. I put the original one in price finder too. I know too. you did. I know so, you did. But we're actually talking about price finder. We used the price finder estimate to do the what if analysis on a lot of these renovations. So you could actually add, add the bedroom, add the bathroom in their system. But then you could also do the same, better or worse to actually say, what if I renovate it? So that was one of the key features of that price finder tool. I don't work for them anymore, but uh, you know, hey, get the plug in. Um, but <laughs> the price segments, yes, it's on my website now, but that's an important thing. A lot of people buy it the, in the upper segments and still think there's room to grow. And that's the thing. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's still a little bit primitive and crude looking at that um, because, like you say, it needs to be done at property-specific level mm. but in a general sense you can look at the price segments and and what that means is that the each price segment and how many buyers are in it or how many properties have sold in the last 12 months in each price segment and obviously you can see where there's potential to move up a price segment by adding value to a property versus where like you said you're already at the top you're already in the highest price segment and to you know people worry about overcapitalizing when they're renovating and when you're already in the top price segment or the most expensive price segment, and you're thinking about renovating, you've got to be thinking, well, actually, does that then make my property take it into a realm where there's very, very few buyers? So it's certainly something that flippers will be thinking about. Which more on the bridesmaid sort of element to this as well, you know, where, you know, you're trying to, the time from actually buying the property to when you sell it could be, you know, six to 12 months, could be two years if you've got DAs and things like that. I mean, is there a sort of a filter you potentially could do where the discrepancy or the price variance between two suburbs that are very similar aesthetically 
um, could be another filter that sort of people looking for flippers could, yeah, could yeah, look at. Absolutely. I did a big paper on that a couple of years ago. We looked, I looked at a lot of the suburbs that you know, did benefit from the ripple effect so we could actually measure the ripple effect through time. Mm. Um, so, so it certainly is the case. I think the other thing too is that there gets that point where an adjacent suburb just becomes out of reach, gets you know, nudged out of the budget of, a lot, mm. of most, most buyers. And I think that's one of the main driver main drivers of that ripple effect is I, I can't afford in that suburb, but what about this next one? And I think in a lot of areas where the locals um, shun a given suburb, a lot of the Sydney siders or the, 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 the Melbourne CBD dwellers moving out don't seem to carry um, that, that, that bias towards those suburbs. So I think the regentrification uh, factor is, is another consideration for these suburbs that come good, so to speak. And that is the key to it. I mean, and, and certainly inner city areas, you, you would see, you know, you would have seen this 20, 30 years ago where workers' cottages and terraces started through that gentrification process and there was a lot of flippers then because that was that was certainly um, that time when there was a massive acceleration and interest in those areas. And now you're sort of seeing any more suburban bungalows, you know, those, those bungalows that are built in the, say, 60s and 70s which were much more modest family homes than we're used to these days. You know, you mentioned about going from one bedroom to two, sorry, bathroom, one bathroom to two bathroom. It was really common growing up in the 60s and 70s to have, you know, even four kids in a three-bedroom house with one bathroom. God knows how they managed, but it was common, mainly because we spent more time outside, I think. But these days, you know, we expect a media room and then obviously with COVID, a home office or a study as well. So, the, the demands on on a family, the expectations on what a family home should have, have changed, and I think that's where a lot of these flippers have come into those areas too, haven't they? And turned a bungalow into something a little bit bigger. And another interesting dynamic is how people search for their properties. So if you're using REAL domain, uh, you can obviously do a search by two plus bathrooms. So mm-hmm. what can often happen is people just bypass the smaller properties. Yep. So that's that's a, a, a something to be considered, especially if you if you're doing some of these renovations. Uh, if you can bump it up cost effectively through a, a change of a floor plan uh, and get it to that two bathroom, or get it from the two bedroom to the three bedroom uh, by some you know good cost effective approaches, it can can work wonders in some cases. Yeah, totally. I mean, that one makes me laugh a little bit. I'm sure you've seen this so many times, Veronica, where you. Uh, you know, you wouldn't fall for it now because you'd look straight at the floor plan. But, you know, mm-hmm. you think, oh, four better in a good suburb. This could be great for our clients. And a lot of people will just rock up and then they get there and go, that's not a fourth bedroom. You know, it's, <laughs> yes. it's like the size of a, I know, a pool table or something like that. And you can't get anything in there. But, you know, I think that's uh, pretty risky where sometimes people just get a bedroom for the sake of it, but it's not actually functionable. And it, you know, actually, if anything, it annoys the buyers and turns them off because they, you know, go there hopeful and then get disappointed because it's not actually a bedroom. Yeah, it's true. Or it's above the garage. You know, I've seen plenty advertised where they go, but there, there is a fourth bedroom. Yeah, but it's above the garage. <laughs> it's not in the same building as the rest of the bedrooms. Yeah, and no ladder. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Now, we did choose two suburbs to look at from Kent's list of flipper prospects and bearing in mind that obviously because we're only considering the impact of uh, removal of stamp duty and it's only really on the cards right at the moment in New South Wales. That's why we've looked at two and interestingly enough, the number one suburb 
drum roll, I'll give nobody a prize for guessing it's going to be in Newcastle. Yes, well, <laughs> Newcastle's full of these locations that have got a lot of unrenovated houses that are on streets that have a lot of renovated property. So yeah. typically one of the things you look for is the, 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 the highest price that you could find in the street in the last five years and then compare the what-if analysis price to that. So that gives you a, a bit of an idea of that price segmentation, but down mm. at the street level. So, yes, drum roll, Adamstown we've got in there. Or <laughs> Adamstown Heights I've picked on. That's just up the road here. Adamstown Heights is really interesting because you've got a lot of 50s builds that are really tired. You you, yeah. you look at the photos, they look really, really bad from the outside. That turns a lot of people off. Mm. But it wouldn't turn off a, a tradie or, a, or a, a serious renovator. And the other advantage is a lot of these are timber, um, so uh, your wood panelling or um so weatherboard. so weatherboard. That's the word. Yeah. I was just, I was <laughs> That's just, the word. Sure, you saw the gap in my head right then. So <laughs> the weatherboard, you know, they're relatively easy to to replace and and not as expensive to extend. Mm. So you can kind of effectively a lot of the fifties weatherboards didn't have you know that bungalow character of the adjacent suburbs, but you can do them up quite nice and give them that that nice sleek look with the right boards and the right the right design. So uh, Adamstown Heights, we found a property in Orana Crescent and it's currently listed at between 720 and 780. And then I did a quick look up and down the street and I found a property that was a rundown. It was only a few doors away, literally three doors away. That's been renovated. That's now a four bedroom, two bathroom property. And that I, you'd value that at the moment at, at about 1.15. Certainly that's what on the house has it valued at. Um, mm. So, so that's a good example of, of uh, I think, a property. Now, there's going to be risks in all of that. You know, you mm. want to make you want to make sure that it's not just your what if analysis that you're doing. You want a, a good building and pest inspection and a, a good tradie to come through and give you a, a, a as close to a fixed price quote as you could possibly get. Yeah, I um, and there's a lot of asbestos in those homes as well. Um, and the reason I raise that is because I just have a particular example in Adamstown. Interestingly, when I was filming the show, and we had a young couple who he's a he was a tradie and really keen to get in and and renovate their first home, and we found this little fibro box and was fine because it was all non-friable in the sense that it was all in really good condition and painted and you know and um, so they could choose to renovate as you know in their own time right except for the fact that when the building inspection was done they discovered that there was asbestos also in all the internal walls oh, and the roof it yeah, was Mr. everywhere Fluffy. the mr yeah. Fluffy, yeah very very dangerous stuff and does awful damage to the valuation of the house terrible and in this case it was just it meant that they couldn't do i mean and obviously they weren't going to be flippers they were they were first home buyers who were prepared you know wanted to renovate over time and it certainly wouldn't have worked for them it would have worked for a flipper because yes it probably would have cut out all of those well definitely cut out these buyers it would have cut out nearly all the other buyers and the flipper can go in there and actually in one hit get rid of all the asbestos and start from scratch but um once again big risk and big added cost yeah, good call out. Um, it is a it is a risk in a lot of these properties. So I think one of the things with flipping is um, I, I do think that you want to be buying in a market that's already rising and there's already um, prices are likely to be high by the time you do your flip, even if you don't even renovate it. The the neighbour's going to be worth more in a year's time. So you know because that de-risks you a lot. If you do overcapitalise or you do hit a problem with your reno, 
a lot of that can be protected because the price of the property is potentially rising. So but that's but that's more risky than actually doing your numbers on the renovation. You know what I mean? Because like it could turn, as we all know. And I've seen plenty of people caught out by that. They were utilising and they were factoring in rising prices as their profit. So they oh, 100%. Didn't... You'd still be wanting to do it, the reno, knowing that there's a profit margin without the, the yeah. market rising. But if you could pick two suburbs, a market rising um, where there's strong days on, you know, days on market, the buyers are out there um, and the neighbouring suburbs are like that versus a suburb where, you know, property sitting on the market and oh, not probably. selling. Yeah, so <laughs> exactly. I think that's just a real good you know protection mechanism that yes you, you potentially could get a lot of money just through the growth of the suburb and then you get the growth of the, the value of the renovation and I think that's where you're going to make some real money and a lot of the people with the renovations would say in that situation oh we made 500,000 but then I'll always say well what was actually the market mm. gain that period was that you know two three hundred if you didn't do a renovation what would you have resold that property for and then it's like, well, we made 200000 And then you can kind of really see that it wasn't sometimes the reno that made the money. It was actually just the market moving. But the other problem with that too is that it brings more flippers into the market when you've got a rising market. You know, there's mm. there's always more speculation, that recency effect, right? Oh, property prices are rising and they're never going to do anything else. So it's that's the sort of risks as well. Others who may not be as cautious as you getting in, pushing up prices, and then you're forced to compete with them. Especially if you're doing all pretty average renos, right, and you're not mm. producing a real quality product that the market really wants at that point in time. Um, you know, you don't want to be doing Hamptons five years ago, but if you do the Hamptons style in 2020, you'll sell it. Um, <laughs> so I think that the actual fit to market of the reno um, i'm sure you've seen it veronica where you just think yep. you should not have renovated this place you've yep. just thrown money away um, yes, yeah. definitely uh, and just interestingly enough i just sort of did check on domain 31 properties currently for sale in adamstown and there's fair diversity in the stock you know from red brick units through to new units and then really old houses looking like they're ripe for a reno, you know, through to new townhouses and duplexes. There seem to be quite a lot of demolition and um, subdivisions going on. So a bit of action there. Now, the other suburb that you chose was Empire Bay. Yes. If anyone who doesn't know, that's in the Central Coast. Well, if you get, this is for the for the old people. So um, obviously, yeah, not my demographic, but 30 or 40 years ago, <laughs> Um, people used to have a lot of holiday homes up in the Central Coast and a lot of these suburbs have still got those original holiday homes and it's quite fascinating. So you can go go to a street and some of the price variances between those that might be on or near the water to further away from the water can be several hundred thousand dollars, indeed can be in the millions. And mm. I've found a property here at Rickard Road, which is exactly that. You've got properties down one end of the street that are you know, $1.5 million plus up uh, near the water. And then a little bit further back, you've got the stereotypical holiday house, the fibro, fibro shack. So it's, um, it's quite fascinating, but we, we found one particular property here um, and it, it doesn't have an advertised price on it, but when you do the price sort, it's a nice, neat trick on the portals yep. to kind of see where it fits. <laughs> um, and it does look like, you know, there's a potential there. If you look at some of the higher price properties, there's very similar properties that aren't on the water that um, sold a few years ago for about a million dollar mark. So we are kind of talking about that potential of 300K plus variance between uh, renovated and unrenovated. So, I mean, I think the Central Coast is a very good 
spot to do it. And I think Newcastle is, but not to a as you know greater extent. Uh, I mean, just because of the Sydney buyers, you know, aren't really going to potentially want to move to Central Coast and then go through a full reno. You know, they've got a much bigger budget than say the locals do, and they want to get that sort of you know place just move in and, and get going, and they can't afford Sydney. So I think it's one of those markets where the buyers are moving up there. And with big budgets, um, and so they, but they, there's not that many properties that are fully renovated and you know tick all the boxes. So um, there is actually scarcity there because they haven't had really the demand there from the Sydney buyers until obviously the COVID situation. So I think it's whereas in Sydney, a lot of the, the rundown sort of places have already been renoed. A lot of them have already, you know, are already hotly contested. So I think that's where you'll you'll find that you've got a real shortage of supply, but also an increasing demand of higher income sort of high borrowing capacity buyers. It's a yeah. rolling process though, isn't it? Because you think about, you know, I've been in re- you know property now for 20 or been in real estate for 20 years and and I think about properties that were freshly renovated 20 years ago and now coming on, you know, the equivalent of unrenovated because people mm. it's dated. So so this is even so yes, sure Sydney's might be gentrified, but the, the entirety of the city isn't and everything goes through its phases. So I mean, you can only have a bedroom once, though, can't you? So you can only go from two to three. You're definitely uh, not getting the one bedrooms anymore. There's very few of them around. But um, interesting enough, in Empire Bay, only 11 properties for sale currently. 252, though, if you include surrounding suburbs. But what in, in Empire Bay I thought was quite funny is everything from what looked like caravan park cabins, you know, yes, <laughs> through the and brand they, new home. They play havoc with a lot of your data and analysis. Mm. Um, so there's several suburbs around the country where I just cringe because, uh, you know, they, they, they're located in these these parks and they, they do, they do uh, flow through into the data set. So you need to be very cautious and deal with those. So, um, yeah, they're not your, your, your typical um, uh, freehold house. <laughs> So funny to see them there. Now, we also mentioned in our last uh, Suburb Trends episode, November, that we'd see if there was a precedent in the ACT for what the removal of stamp duty could do to property prices in New South Wales. And we asked Brendan Coates this question in the episode we released just mm. last Monday, and that's number 153. Can you believe we've, we've wow. this episode? Because we haven't included the Suburb Trends episodes in our tally. This episode is 159. That's phenomenal. Anyway, that's just I digress. Brendan explained that the ACT are phasing stamp duty out rather than using the opt-in or out system that New South Wales is proposing so that we wouldn't expect to see a dramatic effect on prices. And, in fact, they started back in 2012 and it's a 20-year plan. Um, But, Kent, you did take a look at ACT price growth over the last five years. Anything of note? Yes, there were a couple of key things. So in Q3 2019, I know that there was a change noted in July um, of 2019 on the stamp duty. So whether that was a step change or a significant change, I'm not sure. But if you look at the the change in sales volumes, it was a huge change. Um, So we kind of, we, we dropped by, uh, well, in, in Q4 2019, things went up to 1352, but down in Q3 2019, the sales volume was 925. So a massive jump between Q3 and Q4. And equally, the price did change significantly. So, yeah, very interesting period. You're saying a lot more volume came on the market 
Yeah, so Q2 to Q3, things went down. So we dropped by nearly, or give give or take, I'm rounding here, by about 10%. So drop, you got to remember, from, we also had an election then. Ah, you see? Yeah. All these um, spurious well, data points that throw things out. Yeah. I think what's interesting about that, Kent, though, is that um, if let's say we put the election to one side and let's say that really was the stamp duty impact or the change to land tax was driving that, dropping listings and, you know, the volumes increasing in Q4. I, similar with, with the New South Wales state government, they're thinking about uh, not being for every home, you know, because a lot of clients are saying, I want to buy this place at $2 million. Will I not have to pay stamp duty? I'm like, well, you definitely will because, you know, they make too much money there. They're not going to allow the expensive yeah. potentially 20% of properties to ha- pay land tax over stamp duty. And, you know, that's a huge revenue they want to keep on coming. But what will happen is let's say that, that it's a million dollars when no one knows exactly what the stamp duty land tax um, threshold is going to be. Um, but properties at say nine fifty will be super hot because yeah. first home buyers will be like, well, I don't only need a ten percent deposit for this um, rather than a fifteen percent if I buy something over a million. So what you'll see is there'll be a huge push of and people spending a little bit more than a million say, well, you know what, let's just dial down, let's buy something at nine fifty um, and renovate. And- <laughs> yeah, exactly. And <laughs> you'll find this, and then you'll get all this. So you'll kind of like just sway because it's always like it's like the nudge factor. Like people go, you know what happens with the policies etc so um it's and all these sort of things will, will play out in the market where they weren't meaning to create mm. this but this is what all, this is the behavior that will happen after it and so you'll find that you've got to be worried with these flippers because if let's say you buy something at 900 you go spend a hundred thousand on it and you want to sell it for 1.1 well a lot of the 1.1 buyers might be buying at 990 now um, yep. so uh and so there goes the idea of the flip so my frustration thing is with this sort of change is if you're going to do it, you might as well just do it for everyone and actually stop this sort of arbitrage where you're going to start to create these ceilings and um, push people in certain directions. Ah, but the problem is it's a political system yeah. and they have to negotiate this stuff through with the opposition and so that's when it all gets bastardised. But yeah. it's funny, uh, Eliza Rowan, we interviewed her sometime, well, a few times actually, but sometime back and we were talking to her. Um, which at least I think I did on the podcast. It might have been off the podcast, but anyway, <laughs> she was talking about thresholds in first home buyer with first home buyer grants and how they they you can they can demonstrate that there's I can't remember the term, but basically there's bulging you know, yeah. deals being done up to the thresholds and then sort of a, a dip in the market, and it's really obvious in the data. So the same thing would happen, of course. We saw the same thing in lenders' mortgage insurance. There were clearly yep. two, two spikes in risk, and one of the biggest risk spikes was just below 80% LVR. Funny about mm. that. <laughs> so yeah. massaging the values. Here's the problem. It's like you put these thresholds in place, but humans will behave the way humans behave, which is what we love of talking about in this podcast. And, you know, they'll find the un- – it's like COVID. It will find the gaps in the system. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Ken, on our original hypothesis that flippers would have risen in the ACT, you went hunting for examples and could find only one, and, of course, now we know why. Um, it hasn't been a massive surge because, of course, their stamp duty um, has been phased out as opposed to being dramatically reduced. Now, before I looked uh, so I looked at this particular property uh, that you um, that you discovered, and, be, and when I looked at the before and after prices and photos, I thought it would be an interesting case study to talk about. 
It's a 1970s bungalow in the suburb of Camba, and it was purchased in June 2019, so just after that election, for 612000 They did a complete internal and external makeover. They didn't, they didn't add any rooms or anything. They didn't um, you know, make the house any bigger, but um, they then sold it for 854000 13 months later. And so that's a difference of 242000 after holding costs and renovation costs, you can sort of see how slim the margins are and stamp duty could be the difference between profit and loss. And, and I just sort of went through and I listed all the things that they've done. They've completely rendered it. The carpet, new carpet and floating floors, new kitchen, new laundry, new bathrooms, um, paint inside and out, lighting, doors, blinds, wardrobes, skirting boards and architraves, new decks, new new pathways, basic garden beds and lawn. I mean, that all adds up, you know, and I said, looking at that, the sale price, they would have bought well as well and the market had risen. So there there was market movement in that time. In reality, I doubt that you could even say they made a profit. Yeah, and we don't know what we don't know. There could have been some um, other issues that that we couldn't identify. Mm. So, you know, it it creates a significant risk for sight unseen stuff. Well, it does. And, And it's funny, I was watching Renovation. No, no, it wasn't. I was watching restoration australia last night um an episode where they're renovating one of those big old terraces down in um, millers point Uh, and and so the state government has sold these off and they're all listed and so there's massive heritage um costs and the budget went was three times what they originally anticipated but that was something in the sky anyway um but it was really interesting because they're going to lose their view um very soon because of uh, the new Barangaroo, yeah? Is that what you're talking no, about? No, these are facing the bridge, actually. Oh, the other side. Okay. Yeah, yep. on the other side, this particular one. But it was more the fact that every time they started doing some restoration work, they uncovered something else that needed to be fixed. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, like Kent was just saying, that it's a, you don't know until you start doing work on these old houses, you don't actually realise the extent of work that is required. So it's a, it's, it is risky. I mean, this isn't really an episode on the risks of flipping, but it's sort of it's be remiss not to mention them. It's the sunk cost, isn't it? It's those mm. the costs that you, you know, you're fixing the chimney, right? You're not, you've still got your fire, but the chimney needs $15,000 spent on it that no one's ever going to put any value on. Um, <laughs> And but you have to spend it, you know, <laughs> going through a rent at the moment. You know, there's a few things that pop up. Oh, I need to do the electricity upgrade. Okay, well, it's, no one's really ever going to value that for what it costs. Or, you know what I mean? It's just yeah. all these things where um, they only want to see the, the visual impact and um, no one knows the, the thing that you had to, to fix it. You know, it's not going to add any value. And that's the thing that ultimately adds up to a lot of money because it's not really adding value in the in the buyer's mind. So I think in a, in a nutshell, yes, the removal of stamp duty will, I guess, increase the attractiveness of flipping um, because it takes out that sort of additional 4% cost at the up, at, at up front. Um, and I say 4% thereabouts, uh, stamp duty. But, um, but yeah. in reality, only those, it, there's still masses of risk. And even though the market may be rising, they're going to be paying inflated prices too because there's going to be more buyers in the market because that barrier to entry has been removed. So sort of, um, you know, they can factor into their borrowing as opposed to have to actually pay it as a cost, but it's still probably going to be paid in one way or another. Yeah, I think the other interesting thing to look at is uh, the potential for improving yield. So, you know, not flipping it to sell, but flipping it into a 
a rental mm. and improved rental yield. So that's the other analysis I think people should be doing. Although, interestingly enough, and yesterday I actually hosted a webinar for property managers and it was funny because we were talking about the, um, you know, what's been happening in the rental market and it was New South Wales based. Um, and one of the questions came in from somebody's property manager in Newcastle was saying that basically the queue, you know, we, we were talking from Sydney-centric point of view as like, you know, yeah, rents are falling, yeah, tenant, it's a tenant's market, tenants can, can start demanding or are demanding uh, rent reductions, but also demanding more for their money. They want they want more. They want more energy efficiency. They want air conditioning. They want yeah. they they are picky and they can choose between properties now. Whereas when you're queuing up, you can't. But in Newcastle, because there has been this sort of migration out of the cities, you know, the, there are queues at the rental properties. There's not enough stock, and so mm. um, that's sort of an interesting time because. I was also talking with property manager Lisa Inge and we've interviewed her before and she was saying that the moment in Sydney it's not worth renovating to increase your yield, you know, whereas before you could you could do a $20,000 upgrade mm. and, you, and you could get another $50, $60, $70 a week, right, mm. so, which is a good return on that. But in, in Newcastle you might do that because it might have a much better yield but certainly so it's very much, you know, renovating for yield very much depends on market conditions at the time and where you are. Yes. I mean, I think the final thing on the flipping, from my view, is that if you, the big difference between flipping an investment property and then flipping your home, um, and if you can potentially make it your home and get it growing tax free, I think that's a, you know, very, you know, much more lucrative because then you don't have to pay twenty five percent of your profits, you know, in tax. Oh well, also you got to remember, and this is that that Canberra property sold thirteen months after they bought it, and I think that's important because you have to mm. sell it after the first twelve months, right, in order to get that yep. tw- that fifty percent mm. capital gains tax uh, discount. Primary place of residence. There's that too. Then you don't have to pay any capital gains. <laughs> All right, twenty twenty. We're nearly at the end of the year when the word unprecedented was used an unprecedented number of times. <laughs> <laughs> Despite all the dire predictions made around May, April and May, all capital cities are showing price growth for houses. So let's take a look at them. Uh, you know, what are you going to do one by one or give us a bit of a, a summary, Kent? Yeah, look, I might do it alphabetically, but uh, look, the ACT was just a standout in so many ways. So it's obviously you know, had an increase in, in price. Um, so it's, it's just it's, it's a huge market in terms of, all the fundamentals. Inventory levels are very, very low at the moment. So lowest across all the capital cities at about 1.73. So I'm, I'm going to make a bit of a bold prediction for 2021. I, the, we might be talking to, about the ACT as the most expensive capital city in Australia soon. Oh, really? Yeah. It's a bold prediction. Isn't we might it? have to put you in the full or forecasting report, Ken. Be I know. careful. It's uh, a... <laughs> So, yeah, so it's, it's just interesting to see how much the inventory has trended low uh, and prices are still growing. So there's been an 8% growth in house prices uh, in terms of medians here. So uh, a really mm. interesting market. Moving on from uh, ACT, Greater Adelaide, um, that's not really had much of a price change at all, um, So, but inventory has improved. So... When I'm talking about list prices here or, to, or sale prices here, I'm looking at the rolling 12-month um, leading. Um, so, but inventory is a good lead indicator, and that's dropped by nearly one month. So it does look like things in Adelaide are looking solid, especially greeting 2021. Uh, Brisbane, you'd say about the same thing at the moment. 
uh, just under five months of inventory, which is good, but trending lower. So same mm. thing could be said for Brisbane. Um, and I just yeah. want to sort of interject there for a bit because we interv- oh, I interviewed Megan Wells from Brisbane Property Pursuit mm. uh, a couple of weeks back on the podcast and talking about the Brisbane market and obviously like all of these cities, you've got different, you've got micro markets within the, the city, the major city market. You've got houses and you've got apartments. But she's been saying that the demand in Brisbane and inner suburbs for those sort of family homes is going through the roof and uh, just absolute massive pressure on prices. And I spoke to also to another buyer's agent, uh, Melinda Jennison, actually last week about the same yeah. thing in Brisbane. Competition is fierce and prices are definitely on the rise of those inner areas, particularly sort of your more traditional Queenslander and those sorts of period homes, back to weatherboard. Um, that are very much in demand. Uh, yeah, so, so they're eight hundred to a million mark, I assume. Yeah, probably more than that actually. Yeah, they've got some. It's there's a lot two. of Sydney and Melbourne money going into Brisbane at the moment, yep. and that is, you know, pushing up prices significantly. They are finding it, it's a hot market there right at the minute. Well, it's it's anecdotal evidence for me, but have you heard of, yeah. of, of a lot of people moving out of Melbourne and just bypassing New South Wales, going straight up into Queensland? Yes. Yeah. Why do they That's hate? Why, though, why do why do they hate New South Wales so much? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. When they have one summer in Brisbane, they might wish they'd come to Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so Brisbane's going strong. Um, Darwin's always that interesting one. It's um, yeah, uh, uh, hot and cold. But um, in terms of um, the, the the median price, the the list price at the moment is around five hundred twenty seven thousand dollars. So it's not cheap uh, relative to these other cities. It's it's way up there in terms of prices, but inventory has dropped considerably. So it's dropped by nearly two months. So it's down to about mm. 4.35. So it's kind of going from being uh, a medium market in terms of no upwards or downwards pressure into an upwards pressure market. Mm. So um, Darwin's very interesting. Moving on, Hobart. And, that, that, and that's, that, that is significant though, isn't it? Because that has been a shocker for a long time. It has, it has. So, yeah, so, but you know, it's, it's one of the largest drops. And so if I look at the 12-month change in inventory, it's dropped by nearly two months, whereas, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, others, uh, the only other one to have made that type of move is the rest of WA, mm. uh, of all the greater capital city areas. So... It's a significant shift. I think obviously the commodities market has a huge impact on, you know, the Northern Territory mm. economy, just like in WA. Um, so I think that's all been going in the right direction. So, but, you know, we know what the commodities market is so uh, volatile that it has yeah. these booms and busts, um, you know, much bigger than any other sort of real um, sort of asset really, I guess. Um so it's interesting to see that, you know, when you're investing in these areas, like it's basically a mining town, almost like Perth. Um, so you just got to be super careful. Um, Hobart. Uh, yeah. Hobart. Hobart's a very, very tight level of inventory currently. Uh, so, so it's second only, only pipped at the post by the ACT, but it's just over two months of inventory. So it's tight, which, you know, obviously is going to lead to an upwards push in, in price. It's fairly flat. It's been a similar level of inventory all year long, so just over two months. So it's a very, very tight market. So I see continued growth there as well. Um, moving into Melbourne, the next one on my list. So 
Uh, Melbourne has increased marginally. It's up to about 4.26 months of inventory now, up nearly one month. So uh, Greater Melbourne does look like it's starting to turn uh, in the in the wrong direction in terms of you know likely price movements, but things could shift around. You know, we all know what's been happening down there, and you know things are looking a little bit brighter and a little bit better. So I'm not too sure if the last twelve months is going to be a clear indicator of the next twelve months, especially when it comes to Melbourne. That will be rather interesting. Um, and also, we do have an episode on Perth coming up on Monday. So okay. for anybody who wants more insights into what is going on in Perth, uh, that will be quite valuable because we haven't actually done a Perth episode before then. What's happening outside the capital cities, Kent? Yeah, outside the the rest of have all performed quite well. So I think the big, the star performer in terms of uh, a lot of uh, changes in terms of price movement, inventory, the rest of New South Wales has performed very, very well. Um, mm. So your know, prices have jumped up by about 10%. This is the median price. Uh, that's increased. Inventory levels have fallen by nearly one month and it's currently sitting at just below four months. So there's a strong demand and it does look like that'll continue through into next year. So rest of New South Wales has done extraordinarily well, but equally so is the rest of Victoria. So uh, outside of the uh, the CBD, outside of Melbourne City, um, the inventory levels are very tight, actually a little bit tighter than the rest of New South Wales. So uh, about three and a half months of inventory. Um, so it's um, looking good for the rest of Victoria um, and trending down. So, yeah, I'd say that there'll be upwards pressure in, Vic- in the rest of Victoria as well. What about units? Uh, unit markets, uh, yeah, different story now. Um, the, the the rest of the market, like when, when we look at units and we look at the, the outside of the CBD, the, 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 the prices do jump around a bit depending on what's selling and where. So I'm always a little bit reluctant to talk about unit markets outside of the capital cities, the big, the big mm-hmm. guys. So with that in mind, um, look, the big focus, the big two standouts for me, would be the increase in inventory in Greater Melbourne. So it's up close yeah. up close to the seven months of inventory mark now, and that's increased by just over 2%. So usually I, I think we've covered in the last couple of episodes you know, what that balancing point is where it tips in favour of, of, of buyers. Um, around that seven-month mark is where things really start to turn. So once you get above that seven months of inventory, we start to see prices start to come down. It does make me laugh when you say it's seven months. It's like I'd be thinking it had turned oh, probably around two months. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah, it's just it's just the, a ratio. It's just our measurement system. So yeah. typically what we find is equilibrium in America is about that. I use the term equilibrium, but uh, mm. yeah, around six months in uh, for, for America, about seven months here. So once you get above that seven-month mark, you do start to see a downward shift in price. So that was that was really interesting. Um, but uh, equally, Sydney, not off the hook either. It's not been quite as high, uh, a, a bigger change in inventory. It's jumped by about one month. It's currently sitting at about five months of inventory. So I'm not, um, we, I don't expect a massive downward shift in Sydney, but there will be pockets. As we say, it's not mm. one market of Sydney. There are several hundred markets across the greater Sydney. Yeah. So we will see certain pockets that will have very, very high inventory levels that no doubt will have to adjust their prices to, to clear that inventory. I think Melbourne needs to kind of follow, uh, you know, New South Wales sort of decision around stamp duty to land tax because 
you know, if you can get the first-home buyers or people who weren't in the market, new entrants, they're more likely to buy units and houses just due to affordability. It's that sort of stage of life, their cash, et cetera. Um, and so that's really going to potentially save a lot of the newer units in Sydney. If we change the land tax, we allow people to access their super, um, then you create a lot more demand um, and generally more entrance into the market and they'll generally buy the units. And that's, you know, if I think, you know, Veronica always says I'm a conspiracy theorist, but mm-hmm. I ultimately do think there's some type of, that's at play somehow here that they don't want to start to see, you know, lots and lots of units start accruing over, you know, all over Sydney and no one there to buy them off these investors, et cetera. So um, that could potentially save Sydney. So I, if I was in Victoria right now, I think, it's, you know, for them, it's a good time to be making some stamp duty changes. But they could easily fix that by just saying that first home buyers get a discount or free stamp duty regardless of what they buy. You know, they could they could address that if that was truly their motivation. Um, yeah, I think they have done a twenty five percent off. Like so, they did, but you know, still twenty, still got to pay seventy five percent, right? Mm. So, um, you know, I think they're trying to make changes there, but I think if you know, not paying anything at all, like they did in New South Wales, I agree, would be a a good way of doing it. Well, and also because you know that reduces the risk of buying buying brand new because that's bizarre. Oddly enough, and paradoxically, I guess that the reason these the market is filling up with stock is because if first home buyers are the ones buying that stock and their high and their thresholds have gone up for buying brand new, mm. they're not realizing there's no secondary market for what they're buying because that is the secondary market. That's the massive warning sign for them not to go and buy brand new. Mm-hmm but they don't necessarily look at it that way. They see it as free money from the government. Mm. How about rental vacancy rates, uh, Kent? Because obviously we know that they can be a leading indicator for inventory levels and particularly around this unit space. Any significant changes to report here? Look, the, the, the biggie is obviously the pockets. I think we covered this in the last episode. There's a bit no massive shift um, between last episode and now we've got Large pockets in and around those universities um, still yeah. have high vacancy rates, but the the number one trend, the big standout, is the rest of. So the rest of states are facing significant um, changes to vacancy rates. So vacancy rates are extraordinarily low across the mm-hmm. regions, um, which we'll see. You know the scenario, the case study you explained about Mel- uh, about uh, Newcastle earlier. Um, I think there's going to be a rental crisis in a lot of the regions, which is a bit of a worry. You know, a lot of people won't be able to afford rents. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I certainly anecdotally hearing about people moving out of Sydney and my advice has always been if you're going to move out of a city into into regional area and you don't know that area, then you should rent because yeah. you need to get to know the, the place and you get to know exactly what you, where you want to be, et cetera, et cetera, and, and, and be sure that it's the right move for you so it's not a one-way ticket. But, um, you know, that that's becoming pretty difficult when there's nothing to rent. Um, And also another thing from that webinar that I was on yesterday, talking to um, the guy that's an MD, Matthew Matthews, his name is, he's the MD of, um, it's a Mervac joint venture, it's a property management arm of Mervac. Uh, And he was actually saying that the vacancy rate obviously, you know, in some areas, I mean, they were talking about, they've gone up three times, you know, the vacancy rate tripled. Um, at the height of COVID, but it has subsided a little bit and stabilised. So it's still a lot higher than it was, but it's it's no longer growing, which is heartening, certainly if you're a, an owner of those sort of properties. But, yeah, that's Sydney. That's, that's you know, areas very highly affected by the, the Airbnb, 
by the you know like a lack of overseas students and just generally with everything that's gone on yeah well at a national level uh, i count close to 50,000 properties have been listed for three weeks or longer. Mm, wow. And the bulk, the bulk of those are really spread across you know, about 20 or 30 SA3s. Mm, wow. I think the renting issue, um, there's a few. There's a social issue, especially when people are moving to uh, rural locations en masse. Um, it really bumps up demand. There's very little listings and pushes up rental prices for people who are living there, um, You know, especially if the salaries aren't rising. Um, in those areas, and then you start to create affordability issue, et cetera. So there's that side to uh, rental sort of crisis. Um, and then you've got people who get marginalised and pushed out and can't rent, and homelessness, et cetera. So it's a big problem. I think with, you know, even within Sydney um, and the upgraders, we've got a few at the moment doing, you know, where one's uh, got a place but wants to do an upgrade and has a 12-month lease finishing, or they're getting kicked out because the person's selling the property. Um, and they're wanting to to buy, but you know, because they haven't got their ducks lined up, they potentially need to wait till next year. Um, and they're trying to bring it forward because they can't go and find something else to rent. They're just saying, well, let's just buy something. And Why can't they find something to rent? There's heaps of stuff available to rent in Sydney. Uh, this is more of a house. There's a three-kid three, three kid family in the east. Oh, like, yeah. That is difficult to rent. That yeah. is difficult to find, I should say. Send the kids to boarding school. That's the answer. <laughs> Yeah, right. Exactly. One bedroom apartments, heaps of them around. Yeah, yeah. Triple, triple bunk. Um, yeah, and then the other one is a you know similar situation where clients you know in the east but wants to move up near me actually, um, and you know not sure if they're going to like it. So I said, well, let's just rent, and they're like, well, we can't find anything to rent, and it's mm. true, it's hard to rent as well. But you know because it's tough to rent, they're potentially going to just take the gamble, and I think it's really dangerous to yeah. do that. Um, you know, I think it's just if it's hard to rent, that doesn't mean you should just go and try to buy something. It's going to be hard to buy a quality asset and mm. I think that's where it can change your behaviour as well. Um, but you just got to be super, go through the pain, you know. It might only be the last time you rent, but you just got to go through that pain. because well, the pain be- before you buy is so yeah, much exactly. more bearable than pain after you buy if it's the wrong property. Yeah, yeah. And if you want to go back and, yeah, all stand duty, et cetera. So, um, yeah. <laughs> now, can each month we discuss something that doesn't quite fit the pattern? Do you have an anomaly for us this month? I do. I looked at sales volumes and how much they've dropped over the last 24 months. So typically about a 30% drop in, in sales or sales volumes. And my anomaly is that the headlines are saying prices are going up, prices are surging, the market's doing quite well. But the reality is lower sales volumes does not mean a booming time for the real estate sector or real estate agents. I think, <laughs> Very true. You know, yeah. if, if there's 30% less volumes, there's 30% less commissions. It's a big industry that would be hurting. Um, and the headlines are masking that. Well, so not only 30% less commissions, it's usually more than that because when inventory dries up or when, you know, the appraisals dry up, then the competition ramps up and the agents start dropping their fees in order to be able to get, mm. get listings. So, so that increases the pain, really. And yeah. in fact, oh, just on that, I mean, there's been some, the game playing that goes on with some agents has just been nightmarish. And this this is interesting because, you know, I don't know if we can do a study on this, but it would be a very interesting thing to do because as, as markets start heating up, what happens? Yes, inventory starts drying up, listings start drying up, competitive, uh, competitive activity amongst agents heats up. 
Then you've got the agents that go in there and overquote to try to get the listing. So they've got already you've got owners with heightened price expectations because they're looking around and go, yay, clearance rates are high and prices, there's record prices being achieved across the board. Mm. And maybe I can get an extra 200 grand that I was thinking. Then the agent goes through to flatter them to try to get the listing. And they're just hoping that the market will will you know, continue yeah. at speed so they can achieve it. And sometimes they actually do. Or they yeah. get this amazing price and the vendor's disappointed because they, they were so out of control, but they got a crazy price. And, and I look at it and think, you guys, I know you won't be happy with that that result, but it was a really good result. Um, and, I've, and I'm fighting that with agents at the moment, sort of coming to us with the pre-markets and off-markets for next year, starting to say, you know what, these owners have crazy expectations and it's fed by other agents who are pitching for this business as well. Mm. So, and what happens? I've seen this happen time and time again throughout market cycles where when the owners start to get too greedy, when when yeah, the reserves get too much, when you get competition but mm. it doesn't achieve those owners' expectations, clearance rates start falling and then buyers start looking around and go, what's going on? What's weird? This is weird. There's something wrong with this. And um, so there's this sort of strange behaviour that goes on underneath, which can sometimes precipitate prices slowing down. Who knows? Yeah. The, I've seen um, that happen. The statement of information was only a part solution. Um, I'll, t- I'll, give mm. you the, I'll give you the breakdown. I'll write a story about it one time. I went down to see Enzo, who was heading up the REIV at the time, and I proposed to him my three-comp solution, which was all about a, a transparent view of the original CMA and those mm. comps that were used in it that then would be made publicly available as soon as the property lists. So it would, you know, in part, obviously, seek to deal with underquoting and at the other end, seek to deal with overquoting. Mm. So I think, you know, at both ends, that transparency of the comps and the original CMA are important. But I'm hearing anecdotal stories of one price is written on paper, which is yeah. you know, handed across, and then the other one is, is, is entered into the CRM for any audit trail. Exactly. And that is what happens and has been happening for years. And you will have, look, these are the comps we're going to say. So the buyers, you know, it's how to, you know, how yeah. to boil a frog, right? Chuck yeah. the frog in the pot of boiling water. It supposedly jumps right out. I'm not quite sure how it does that when its little legs have been burnt. But anyway, um, you know, whereas you put in a pot of cold water and turn up the heat, then uh, you get a nice poached frog. So this is this has been going for years and and. Some agents even have that conversation with their owner to say, you know what, I'd like to be able to quote what I've told you because I'm confident it's going to get that price. However, the way the market works is that you have to underquote to a degree because buyers don't, they add on to what we say and, and they actually have this conversation with the owners. The, the fact is it's true. This is exactly what happens, mm. you know. And so they explain that. They say, so if I quote what I've told you I expect, you're not going to get that. Um, because it requires me to actually build up their expectations. Now, there's, and I see two, sort of there's a number of different ways that agents do this in a functional way, but some then just go to ground and just refuse to entertain offers and just go, you know, yep. stick their hands in the ears, la, 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 don't talk to me, don't talk, I don't want to know, we're going to auction, we're going to auction, we're going to auction, yep. I've been told don't entertain any offers, blah, 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 and they never increase their quoting. Now, I bought a property at auction a couple of weeks ago and I put an offer in during the campaign because I was trying to get them to increase the quoting because it was so ridiculously low and I knew they weren't going to sell prior and he continued to quote less than what my written offer was. Yeah. And his justification was, well, you know, my reserve's lower than your offer. And I'm like, that's not the law. It doesn't mm. matter. 
The fact is you've rejected my offer, which means you're not allowed anymore to quote less than my offer, but he didn't care. Just keeps doing it. And then you got the other, so that's one type. And so he didn't want the offer. He was avoiding me and all the rest of it. And I gave him the offer. Then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got those agents that will actually, they'll do the bait conversation. Hmm, I think we've got someone talking about coming in with an offer on Monday and, and we're expecting that offer to be around X. And if all their buyers don't fall off, they go, excellent, I can increase the quoting to X and they'll do the process again, rinse and repeat. Hmm, oh, well, no, that buyer didn't come in with that offer. They decided to go to auction, but I've got another one there talking about X plus one. And no, no one's fallen off. Great. So they they ramp it up. That's They're actually turning mm. the heat up in the pot underneath the frog. And, you know, it, it's and they're, they're at least doing their job um, in a bit more transparent, but it's still the dialogue around it isn't really honest, you know. So, and buyers have no idea that this is going on. Mm. It's a, yeah. an industry in need of a, a lot more regulation. Well, see, here's the thing. I don't think the regulate. there's loads of regulation around this. It's just the problem is that the agents and the buyers play their, it, each plays a part in this game. Yeah. And it's a game. Mm. And so it's without understanding what's really going on, no one feels that they can be honest. And so, and I don't think regulation is going to sort that one out. Hmm. I mean, this is why I see when clients haven't, you know, used a buyer's agent, um, you know, as a couple on the weekend and, you know, uh, I've suggested they should and they're not, which is fine. And if not, I don't actually do the numbers on last year, but it's, it's probably about 50, 50, I guess. Um, mm. but de- definitely I, I try to help, but I'm always like, you definitely need to get, you know, around pricing, you, you know, there's easy buyers will think, well, okay, well it's on there for 900. So I'll offer 965 and, bit less than 10%. And like, unfortunately, because there's not the knowledge there on A, how to price the property, mm. really what it's worth, the market, comparables. Um, what type of agent, sort of, what's the process yeah. the agent is following. Exactly. And so there's, you know, is that making an offer even a good idea? Yeah. Um, you know, and so all these sort of questions, they're kind of looking for a mental shortcut or a little rule book to play. And then you can always put this out in the marketplace. Unfortunately, it just doesn't work like that, right? And it's just so much, you know, Every situation is differently. How you approach it, what's actually a good price? You know, do you make one really good offer? Do you start low and um, send them a link to my book, Chris? Yeah, mm. well, auction that's ready. How to buy property at auction? Even though you're scared shitless, or that does not, they're not scared enough. Well, the re- reality is, a lot of people probably wouldn't read the book, not because it's you, because yeah. it's a whole effort to go down and reading a book. Yeah, um, and so with the sort of transaction, we even. If the knowledge is there, they just want to kind of get the deal done and, and get rid of that pain of, of the search. Um, and so, you know, they'll potentially just try to make offers and they get themselves into that, you know, once you've, made the, once you've started the dialogue, oh. it's not going to end well because um, you've already started to uh, show that you don't really know what you're doing and then the agent's really going, okay, what tool should I use now? And so... Exactly. The pickle they get themselves into, it's just appalling and they don't even know that they've been played. And yep. that's, that's the bit that is, and these are smart people, smart, successful people get stuck in this loop. Uh, we could have a whole episode just on that. Yeah. Okay. If you, from speaking to agents, um, you know, when COVID and people were in lockdown, everyone's like, oh, the agent's just going to work straight through in January. And I'm like, well, Everyone needs a holiday at some point. Um, COVID wasn't really a holiday. Are you finding a lot of the agents are still just going like every other year, shutting yeah. down in January? It's no yeah. change. Yeah. So yeah. most agents, unless you're in a holiday area, uh, unless you're in a, and you know, where they want to yeah. sell to ice cream liquors, 
um, <laughs> then typically uh, agencies are closing. So their last day is often the 22nd of December and yeah. they'll reopen on, I think it's the 4th of January, which is the first Monday after the um, the New Year's. Yeah, yeah, first Monday. The good stuff doesn't really come on to after Australia Day. Do you, is that right or do you find Generally, it? although yeah. some agents are saying, look, you know, they reckon that, that January is going to be a lot hotter this year, not just temperature but in terms of a buyer activity because most, you know, no one's able to go overseas. But I still think that people are going to take holiday and, and certainly if you look on Airbnb, there ain't much accommodation left around no. the country. So right. I, I still think we might not be going overseas but we are taking holidays. So... Um, we tend not to see the auction campaigns kicking off uh, until maybe the weekend before Australia Day weekend or Australia Day is in the middle of the week this year. So it'll probably be the last weekend of January that we'll see any true volume of, of you know, any any noticeable or marketable or um, useful volume of stock. But there'll be trickle throughout that time of pre-markets and off-markets. And I guess just one tip for listeners is um, if you're thinking about buying early next year, um, you know, especially right now, is, is don't delay the whole pre-approval process. Oh, it's yeah. frustratingly um, challenging at the moment. There's not every bank's offering pre-approvals. They, you know, even less every year um, seem to want to do them. They're a bit of a cost to the business. They're, you know, they don't actually convert very highly versus actual purchases and refinances. So, um, and a lot of them are done by computers now. They're not actually done by humans. So. If you want to get a real pre-approval by a human, um, you've only got limited options um, and the whole process, all the banks are really struggling with turnaround times and they're still very confused around responsible lending and, you know, untrained credit assessors and it's a real nightmare at the moment to get pre-approved. Um, so if you are thinking about doing something early next year, just get the ball rolling, you know, as soon as you can because it could take some time. Be prepared, the old yeah. girl guide or boy scout motto. If you're not prepared, you will be caught out. And if you are prepared, you can still choose to do nothing. Yep. <laughs> well, I guess we should wrap up our December 2020 Suburb Trends episode. Thank you again for joining us, Kent, and thank you all for listening. We'd love to hear your questions and feedback and uh, also, you know, what you'd like us to cover next year. Kent, we're looking forward to you joining us for a February 2021 Suburb Trends. We're going to have a holiday in January won't be much to talk about in terms of market movements because most of the country sort of uh, goes on holidays and there's a lot less transactions over that period of time. So, um, you know, we hope you have a lovely Christmas break. And um, thanks again, Ken. Thank Merry you. Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team would love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. If you're a first-home buyer and you don't want to miss a step with this most important purchase, join me on Wednesday nights at 7.30pm Sydney time on the Home Buyer Academy Facebook page for live Q&A. Check out the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. Every month, my team hosts a webinar on what we are seeing at the banks, the best rates, changing policy and their service. We also share the latest insights we hear and read that are impacting the property market direction. 
check out wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo. Thank you.